All right, we're, we're recording. I still have copies of McShane's I Love the Lord's Day, and we have lots of those next door. I still have six copies of this book, The Day of the Lord, the, the Day God Made, rather. For anyone who seriously wants to read it, uh, let me just go over my plan at this point. If I'm not mistaken, including this Sunday, we have three Sundays remaining in, uh, in August. I want to be done by the end of August. Even though we've kind of dragged uh, through the first, what were supposed to be the first four lessons. Um, so we had two on general introduction, two historical survey, and then it was going to be two practical, uh, the practice of Sabbath. Well, we're just about done. Let me see in my notes where we even are. Ah, I see. Okay. Um, We're just about done with a historical survey and part two, and then what we need to do is to begin the practice of Sabbath keeping. I'm going to do a little bit of teaching at the beginning of that lesson, and then what I plan to do is to structure the class through asking questions. Some of those questions will have an obvious answer. Some of them will be perhaps more provocative and and generate a bit of discussion Again, on the idea of, of the practice of Sabbath keeping. That's always a dangerous thing to do, uh, uh, but, but hopefully worthwhile. Uh, so I'm going to give up some control of the class. I am going to stop recording at that point. So <laughs> once, we, once my pure teaching has ended, and, and that may take the rest of today to finish historical survey and then to introduce the practice of Sabbath keeping. Once we get to the discussion questions... That's it for the recording, for anyone who's listening online. Uh, and then uh, we'll, we'll hopefully do some of that today and then for the next two weeks. And the primary uh, outline will be this book. So we'll look at chapters 1 through 4 today, if, if, if at all possible. That's the plan, at least. So, uh, having said that, let me remind you where we were last time. Uh, we were looking at... The, the Sabbath and the time of the Reformation, and I confess I was a little fuzzy on that, and that even came out in the teaching. I had to correct myself based on a question opening uh, Hughes Alphenold's book. I said they, they observed Christmas and Easter. It actually was the five feast days. And, and interestingly, though, the one they were mo- this is the Reformed wing of the Protestants. The one they were most uneasy about was Christmas, and that's become the one Christians take most for granted. They did observe it. Uh, But by the time you get to the Puritans, let's call the Puritans the sons of the Reformers, the Reformers having re-examined the issue of the Sabbath and of the church calendar, the Puritans, uh, just just in the spirit of what we would say, the Puritans, in a very Puritan fashion, they purified the church entirely of the church calendar. And they, they also... Uh, had a more exalted view of the Sabbath than you find amongst the Reformers. Uh, So you don't find, for instance, Luther and Calvin teaching the Sabbath in the same way you find it described in the Westminster Confession of Faith, Westminster Larger Catechism, Westminster Shorter Catechism. These are wonderful resources, and if if you read these confessional resources, what you will notice is a very high view of the Lord's Day. And the Lord's Day, especially in connection with something in particular, I, I said this last time, what, what was it? With worship. So, religious, of religious worship and the Lord's Day, that's chapter 21, I think. 
I might have that wrong. But anyways, I think, I think that's right. Uh, so the Sabbath was seen in its connection with worship. And so very naturally, uh, we in the OPC being sons of the Puritans, in our directory of worship, it opens after defining worship with the Lord's Day. And we looked at that, I think, in the first week. Uh, that's the same thing you find in the Westminster Confession. But also what you find in the directory of worship. Uh, this little book is so cool. Uh, this is, I wish I had this in a modern format, but this is the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Directory of Worship. So what is, what is less well known is that the assembly also produced a directory of worship. The Directory for the Public Worship of God, and it's spelled P-U-P-L-I-C-K, the Public Worship of God. Uh, and what you find in there is uh, the idea that you find in the Westminster Confession. Uh, and, and again, let me just remind you, as I taught in Presbyterianism, this is the way you ought to think about what it means to be Reformed, <laughs> that our theology is expressed in worship. Don't tell me you're Reformed, but we have a rock band at the front. We got, that, 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 that doesn't work, okay? Reformed theology and Reformed worship. That's what that, that wedded together. Uh, and, and, and the work of... Uh, the work of the reformers and of Calvin was not just articulating theology, but it was bringing that theology to expression in worship. That's what the Puritans did. That's what the, the Westminster divines, we call them, did. They, they expressed their theology, and then they, and then they uh, practically defined that, the practice of that theology in a directory of worship. And so naturally, naturally, uh, the... Um, the Sabbath was prominent in their directory of public worship. In fact, uh, while I love our directory of public worship very much, and I've professed my love for it many times, so I'd have nothing against it, uh, but um, I have to say that uh, the, the view is even more exalted <laughs> in the older form of the Lord's Day than it is in the newer form. So uh, there is benefit to going back to the original so this is what, uh, what they said. They present two things, a high view of the Lord's Day, and this is typical of the Puritan view. And the Puritan view also came into colonial America. If you think about teaching on the First Great Awakening, that was the prevailing view. And there were two facets. There was a very high view of the Lord's Day, which the nation observed, not just the churches. And then the second thing was the exclusion of all other days. And so if you think of the Puritan Sabbath, those are the two hallmarks. A high view of the Sabbath and the exclusion of all other days. Now this is something which you do not find in the modern directory of public worship, but which you do find in the older directory. So it says, I'll just read some of what it says, of the sanctification of the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day ought to be so remembered beforehand as that all worldly business of our ordinary callings may be so ordered and so timely and seasonably laid aside as they may not be impediments to the due sanctifying of the day when it comes, the whole day is to be celebrated as holy to the Lord, both in public and private. So you think of the Christian going home from church, but he's still observing the Sabbath as being the Christian Sabbath, to which end it is requisite that he or excuse me, but that there be a holy cessation or resting all that day from all unnecessary labors. See, not from all labors, but from all unnecessary labors. These men were very precise 
and in abstaining not only from all sports and pastimes, but also from all worldly words and thoughts. So they look not only at your activities, but your, your conversations. What are you talking about on the Sabbath? That the diet on that day be so ordered as that neither servants be unnecessarily detained from the public worship of God, nor any other persons hindered from the sanctifying of that day. Isn't that interesting? You had to think about your meal times. Uh, I could keep reading, but you get the sense. A very high view. Oh, I, I want to read the whole thing, but for the sake of time, I won't. I want to read to you something else. Now, again, as I say, you don't find this in our directory of public worship. I wish we did, but we don't. And so there is a historical difference between the Puritan directory of public worship and the modern one. And so you find this. This is a little appendix on page 344, at least of this copy. And it's uh, the conclusion. By the way, you also have a form of government. So you have all three books in one here. This is, this is just an incredible little book. Um, I'm not aware of anything equivalent in the contemporary form. But the appendix is, is this. Page 344, there is no day commanded in Scripture to be kept holy under the gospel, but the Lord's Day, which is the Christian Sabbath. Festival days, vulgar, that's a tough word, vulgarly called holy days, having no warrant in the word of God, are not to be continued. And so they explicitly forbade the observance of the church calendar. Now that is a difference in, uh, in our directory of worship. There are other differences as well, by the way. I don't want to get into those today. So, and I'm, I'm an OPC man, so I, I will expe- express my preference for that, uh, that view, but recognizing at the same time that if a church or if a man observes a holy day, aside from the Sabbath in, in the OPC, he's not in violation of the standards of this church. So that, that is a historical difference. Nonetheless, it is helpful to see uh, that as a historical development and to recognize at the same time that in the OPC, uh, more even so than, than, than viewing ourselves as heirs of the Reformers, we really are heirs of the Puritans. And I would speak of the Puritans as our forefathers in the same way the First Presbyterians would have viewed it when they came to America. It is out of this commitment that Daryl Hart... Some of you may remember me discussing this uh, in my study on Presbyterianism. He calls, I, I really like this terminology, calls the Sabbath the high holy day of the Presbyterian church calendar. So that it's not that we don't observe holy days or feast days, but that the Sabbath itself takes that form in the life of the people of God. Uh, so it's not a diminished view of holy days It's rather the Sabbath taking the place of all the holy days and viewing it as a day of of celebration, as a day of feasting, as a day of celebration, uh, but also as a day of of mourning and fasting, potentially. It it, it has all of the facets wrapped up in one. It is the high holy day of the Christian church. All the more so because it has a clear scriptural warrant. How much more ought Christian people uh, to, to have an exalted view of the Lord's Day? To ascribe, in other words, 
what they do these other holy days that you don't find in the Bible and that you don't find in the early church, why, why not ascribe uh, that sense of that festive sense of celebration and exultant rejoicing to the Sabbath? Uh, there's a little uh, meme. Uh, and it, it's a picture of the, the Presbyterian church calendar. And it's just, it's just every Sunday, Sabbath, 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 Sabbath. Sabbath. There's, your, there's your 52 holy days a year. So we can joke about it. But that, that really is, in essence, the view of things. Now again, you ask, why not? Why not add to that? But the Puritans would have said that we must never go beyond what Scripture Commands. That's the answer. All right. I'm going to jump now to the Sabbath today, and this will conclude our historical survey. Again, uh, as I said, if you, if you bring the Puritan belief into colonial America, early colonial America, you find these commitments still in place. Uh, this is a rapid American survey up to the, begin- up to the present but signs of weakening began to emerge in the, in the time of the Second Great Awakening, that is, on, on the Sabbath, middle of the 19th century. There was a book I wanted to read, and I didn't bring it with me. Oh, well. Uh, it's one more quote from Hughes Oliphant Old. He says, uh, a fascinating thing occurred in the Second Great Awakening, and that was that the evangelical church began to become preoccupied with medieval forms of piety. That's what he calls it. And even today, you see, this hasn't gone away. You see evangelicals observing Lent. Now, that would have been horrifying to one of the Puritans. What are you doing? But this sort of thing uh, has become common today. It has this this sense of being super spiritual. Uh, But the reality is what they're doing without realizing it is that they are embracing the very forms of piety that the reformers and the Puritans after them were at such pains to reject and to prove were unscriptural. What you find uh, in the Second Great Awakening is that that Puritan ideal that was embodied in the days of the First Great Awakening, that ideal and that heritage was falling apart. Although I've been fascinating to read in, in Marsden's biography of Jonathan Edwards, and, and you know, I'm learning all the time, my framework is constantly adjusting. He points out that really immediately after the first great awakening it was beginning to fall apart. Uh, but you can imagine what, what the what the men were thinking in the first great awakening, the ideal that was being realized in America was the Puritan ideal, not just for churches, but for the whole of the nation. And they even thought, being post-millennials, that the millennial kingdom was on the cusp of, of, of dawning uh, and how wrong they were. The reality is they didn't see it was all falling apart. It's actually, I don't know if any of you, I know some of you read the Marston biography. I'm, I'm, I'm towards the end. It's very depressing to read that book. The first half is so hopeful. And I mean, I'm in the doldrums with Edwards now. I mean, it just, just to see it, all his high hopes being dashed. It is a helpful reminder. This isn't heaven. This isn't heaven. And, our, and the best things await us. Uh, so we store treasure up in heaven. And sometimes uh, even the best men get carried away uh, with their hopes for this world. Edward certainly among them. But with the Puritan heritage decaying in America, 
a new form of piety began to take its place. Chief among this, you think of the good order and the authority vested in the minister and the magistrates throughout society in the Puritan ideal. Now, radical individualism was chief among uh, their view. But again, that began to emerge just prior to the, the Revolutionary War. So that's post-First Great Awakening. Again, that's opposed to the, the Puritan emphasis on good order and authority. But also as part of this, as I said, there was a newfound fascination with medieval piety. Now, now that's ironic because you have Protestants, even low church evangelical Protestants, who would have who would have shunned any notion of being Roman Catholic in their outlook, uh, and yet they were embracing Roman Catholicism. Although I say it's ironic. But is it really that ironic, given the fact that they were rejecting the emphases of the men who stood so valiant, valiant, I can't say that word, let me say another word, heroically against Roman Catholicism, the Puritans themselves. In rejecting the Puritan men, are we surprised to find the American church beginning to soften its embrace of Roman Catholicism? That's my historic, it's a very weak amateur Uh, historical analysis. Nonetheless, that is my analysis of what happened in the American church. Out of this emerged a new prominence given to the church calendar. Again, this is 19th century. And what is so ironic is that one of the most high church features of the Roman Catholic Church, the church calendar, has now become the stuff of evangelicalism. Again, that is simply a, a, a fact of history. How one feels about it uh, depends on the individual. Uh, as, a, as a son of the Puritan myself, I'm, I'm obviously far less comfortable with that. I share the Puritan's concerns about, about it for those reasons. The question now is where that leaves us today, given the breakdown of the Puritan ideal in the midst of the 19th century. And that leaves us going back to Meether's article uh, where he analyzes the 19th and the 20th century. If you remember what he said, I don't remember who said it. Let me see if I can find it because it's on the first page of that article. It leaves us as the land beyond the Sabbath. Well, he doesn't say who says it. Oh, it was missionaries. It was Presbyterian missionaries used to say that of uh, the frontier as, as uh, it was expanding west in the 19th century, the land beyond the Sabbath. But what we find is that it's not just uh, the western frontier as America expanded westward, but it is the whole of America. By the time you get to the 20th century, as Meether points out, not even Presbyterians were concerned to uphold the Sabbath. Uh, it, it, it simply as though Uh, If you even try to do so, you are now viewed as someone who is living in the wrong century. (laughs) You're just a Puritan. You should have, I've even heard this said, you should have been alive in the 17th century. You were born in the wrong century. I I think that's a weak argument. But that's how the argument is made today. Uh, The the, the principle is either right or it isn't, period. I don't care what century you're in. Uh, but, But the church too often has accommodated itself to the age in which it's lived. And since America became the land beyond the Sabbath, well, there really was no use in the eyes of the church 
of holding on to it. Now, look at the church in the 20th century and tell me how she fared. Did she do well or not? Do we think that the church in giving up her commitment to this, among other things, uh, succeeded as a church or failed? I think it's perfectly obvious that the church has never in the history of America, now it's not a long, we're not, we don't have a long history, but in four centuries, the 20th century was, was pathetic. It was pitiful. The church was mighty in the 17, 18, and 1900s, but she became a shadow of her old self in the 20th century. And this is part of why. Because the Sabbath is the day that Christians gather together to worship. If you weaken the Sabbath, you are weakening society's commitment to worshiping God, period. Plain and simple. Of all things, why would you give that away? Why would you give that away? Again, I would note today in the OPC, this is, this is Meether's article... Uh, it's a wonderful little article. I'd be happy to make copies and hand it out as well. It's just four pages, uh, three and a half. Very simple read. It was a New Horizons article. The Sabbath, Plausibility for Presbyterian Pilgrims. That's a pretty fancy title. I, I, I might have titled it uh, The Sabbath and the OPC Today. <laughs> and he just makes the argument that uh, the OPC is, is one of the last bastions of this ideal. And, and the way that ideal is is realized in our existence is, is through the practice of morning and evening worship and also as an expression of our pilgrim identity uh, that we realize this is not heaven, this is not our home but that we are seeking, as Hebrews points out to enter our Sabbath rest and not to perish in the wilderness and out of that commitment emerges our desire to keep our weekly Sabbaths again, it's an expression of our pilgrim Identity. You'll have to read his article to get a sense of that. But this is certainly something that the OPC is seeking to hold on to, even as it's been eroded away in American Protestantism uh, and even reformed American Protestantism. Uh, most, most reformed denominations just simply do not hold on to the Sabbath, and it's something that, that makes the OPC stand out. Um, you know, I, I've been talking about this lunch I had with the, the pastors from Grace a few weeks ago. It was a wonderful lunch, but, you know, we ended up joking about, well, I'm the Sabbatarian in the room. Uh, and I remember John Shortman saying the same thing. He went to a pastor's breakfast. They said, oh, you're, you're a Sabbatarian, aren't you? I mean, it's almost, I, I won't say it's a stigma, but it's, it's almost like you're, you're the odd man out, even in a room full of ministers. It's so, it's so tragic, though, if you look at it historically. When you used to be able to take for granted if the man was a Baptist, if the man was a Methodist, if the man was a Presbyterian, he would hold to the Sabbath. Uh, so I view this as a tragic feature of modern American Presbyterianism. I view this as a real strength of the OPC, not, not something that makes us live outside of our own century, but we view the Sabbath as something that is, uh, that is always viable in every age. One key feature, though, as I said, is that that second feature of the Puritan ideal is that we don't view it as to the exclusion of all other days. And so you might go into an OPC church and find uh, that they're not only observing Christmas, but that they have, you know, all four, I don't even know what they're called, uh, the four Sundays uh, in December. What's that called? Advent. Advent, yeah. I don't, yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be in favor of that. Uh, but you find churches in the OPC holding to that. Um, so there, I, I'm just letting you know, historically, that is, that is a difference. 
And there's nothing in our book that forbids it. But again, if you read our book, you will notice a very, very high view of the Sabbath. And so I really want to stress that. And so uh, that concludes the historical survey. Uh, Amazing how the time slips through my fingers. Our great interest then, assuming a certain theological foundation that is in our general introduction and our historical survey, our great interest is the practice of keeping Sabbath. One of the things that I remember a pastor saying in uh, seminary, the men who always made the biggest impression on me in seminary were the pastors who were teaching the seminary courses, not the lifelong seminary professors. This guy was a professor, uh, an adjunct professor, was a pastor at a local church. He said, uh, usually your theology informs your practice. But he said, sometimes your practice informs your theology. And he said, the Sabbath is like that. The Sabbath is the kind of thing where you, you almost have to start keeping it before you can believe in it. But once you start keeping it, uh, then you almost can't believe that you ever lived any other way as a Christian. And so why don't you just try to keep the Sabbath? And, and then you tell me whether or not it's a blessing or whether it's a rugged uh, legalistic burden that I'm trying to place on your shoulders. Uh, practice informs theology. With that, let us begin our study of the practice of Sabbath keeping. And I want to begin uh, by noting, as, as I said, uh, the book which we will be using, Glenn Necht, from, from this point to the end of August... Uh, and doing just a bit of teaching here, and that, that may fill up the time, but maybe, maybe we'll have a few minutes to begin our discussion. The first chapter of next book is the importance of the Sabbath. Now, this is a living man, a living minister, so here's a rare Banner of Truth book, which is written by a living author. So there are still men out there who believe in the Sabbath, believe it or not. And by the way, any of you who know John Shortman, I know we have many fans of his here. Uh, He has a higher view of the Sabbath than I do. Uh, So talk to him about it sometime. So he makes four points. There aren't actually bullet points in here, but as as I read it, he makes four points in this first chapter. The importance of the Sabbath. I'll begin by reading a quote. He says, We have slipped from the high pattern of human life designed by our Maker. This chapter reads a lot like Terry Johnson's introductory chapter uh, on the book of family worship, uh, making the point, in essence, that we've lost something very dear to the Christian church and to humanity and to society. We've lost the Sabbath. And so when he says we've slipped from the high pattern of human life designed by our maker, he's addressing the church today. This would be true in Europe as well. The church has lost the Sabbath, but in giving away the Sabbath, we've given away too much. And we can also look at it and say, what have we gained? I want someone to honestly tell me one thing we've gained in giving away the Sabbath. Did we win the culture? Is the church stronger? I cannot think of one thing we gained, but we've lost Uh, Far too much. Loss of the day. Four things. Loss of the day leads to loss of the family. Next says. 
those precious hours in the busyness of modern living given away. You think of uh, the need for family worship. Well, if you're too busy during the week, I'm not sure that I would excuse you, but why not use Sunday afternoon as the father to open the Bible and read it to your family? You say, well, the pastor did that, but but does the home have any value anymore? (laughs) Is the home that sanctuary that Terry Johnson described it to be, that sacred place where the family gathers together under the instruction of the father and the nurture of the mother? Let me see if I can... I, I think this is worth reading. He says, Families experience fragmentation, strain, and disintegration. The lack of opportunity for life together in the home afforded by a right use of God's holy day means no organizing center around which the members of a family can mobilize themselves. The failure of fathers and mothers to teach the ways of God and the wisdom of God from the Holy Scripture and from life may come partly from the abandonment of the day of days. Families are thus consigned to endless rounds of activity and hurry with no hedged-about areas of time for leisurely conversation and chances to impart the knowledge and love of God to a new generation. You see, Necht is saying, this is a gift that God has given us and we've squandered it. We're so busy, we have no time to spend together. We, we don't organize our lives around God's word anymore. Husbands and wives robbed of restorative hours on a regular basis on the Lord's appointed day become irritable. Loss of temper in the home is a plague spoiling the effect of preaching and teaching in the church. Divorce has become accepted when a quiet and worshipful Sunday spent together would perhaps have been a healing balm for wounded hearts. Incredible. Now, I really believe that. I don't know if you believe that, but I really believe that. Loss of the day leads to loss of the family. He goes further. He says, loss of the day leads to loss of the church. First, the church weakens, I'm reading him now, then it compromises in order to attract, and finally becomes not the true physician of society, but the charlatan of the modern age. I love that. The charlatan of the modern age. Then it collaborates with the culture until it has no distinctive message to bring to a disordered time. When the day is gone, the church is gone too. Again, I ask you, just as a question of history, whether or not that is true. The third thing we lose is a loss of appreciation of the eternal. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder of what we are called to. I still have it on the board. God enters His rest, but He calls us along with Adam and Israel to enter His rest along with Him. And our weekly Sabbath, that's the third point, become a weekly reminder, as it would have been for Adam, a weekly reminder of what it is we are destined to enjoy. And so in, in, in the, the mundaneness of, and the earthliness of six days of labor, the thing we lose sight of is the eternal. Well, on the seventh day or the first day, depending on the dispensation in which you live, God gives you a blessed opportunity to focus uh, on that eternal perspective. But look at the world today. Look at the church today. Tell me whether she has anything of that perspective. And might it not be because she's given away her Sabbath. Number three, uh, that was number three. Number four, he says, what time is it? We will have a little bit of time for questions um, or for, for me to ask questions, for you to answer. Um, he says, we've been estranged from our maker. So not only have we lost the dimensions of, the, of eternity, 
But we, he says we've forgotten how to be thankful. And God is grieved with us. He designed a day for himself in which we would have a block of time for rendering worship and thanksgiving and praise to him. It was to be his day in our lives when the eternal dimensions of our existence was most prominent and given due exercise. But we have counted this day much like any other and done our pleasure and fulfilled our needs and forgotten the one who gave this day as a gift of special quality to us. Going on, he says, the day is a sign between him and us, a sign that he has placed there as a special bond of holiness and love. All right. Having said that, and I'm going to stop the recording there, so I am done with this side of it.